message. All right, good morning. Have a seat, have a seat. It's a pleasure, as always, to be up here. Uh, it is a pleasure to close out the book of Mark. Uh, I had the privilege of getting the first couple of verses, and now I get to bookend it and close it out. Uh, real quickly, yeah. Yeah, they already took off. They're, they're, they are out. They are out. Uh, thank you to the music crew for leading today. If you were at all, and, and some of the freshmen were part of it too, but if you were at all part of the music team, would you stand up? And I just want to acknowledge you, so thank you. Thank you very much for leading us this year. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 15. Mark 15. And as you flip there, we're going to be in verse 42. As you flip there, remember our context. Remember our setting. This is where we're at. We have seen Christ betrayed by one of his disciples. We have witnessed all of his followers flee. They've left him alone. We've seen him beaten. We've watched as Peter denied him three times. We've seen him interact with Pilate. We've seen Jesus as the substitute for Barabbas. We've seen him scourged. We've seen him crucified. And we've seen him die. And that's where we pick up is verse 42 of Mark chapter 15. And we're going to read all the way to Mark 16, verse 8. And if you would, and if you're able, please stand out of respect for God's holy, inerrant, inspired word. Mark 15, 42 to 16, 8. Hear the word of God. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and, or brought a, bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been, had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There 
you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Please pray. Lord God, thank you for your text. Thank you for the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. Thank you that there is one gospel where hope is found because the empty tomb still speaks. And there is one gospel upon which the church is built. And there is only one gospel upon which we are saved and saved to the uttermost. And so, Father, I pray, would you make me faithful to the text? I pray, Father, you would rip away the cobwebs over eyes right now and the cobwebs over ears right now and that we would see and hear the very words of Christ. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. All right, before we dive into the text, just a quick word about verses 19, or 9 through 20. Uh, in most Bibles, they are in brackets. We don't have the time to dive into the complexity of why we are not reading this, so I hope this just suffices uh, for you. This is from the ESV Study Bible. It says this, Some ancient manuscripts of Mark's gospel contain these verses, and others do not, which presents a puzzle for scholars who specialize in the history of such manuscripts. This longer ending is missing from various old and reliable Greek manuscripts. Early church fathers did not appear to know of these verses. And then secondly, from Dr. James White, who has devoted his life to textual criticism and manuscripts, he adds this. He says, uh, the problem with the longer ending of Mark, so 9 to 20, is that there are different longer endings of Mark. The style and the vocabulary of the longer ending of Mark doesn't sound the same as the rest of the gospel. It looks like the longer ending of Mark has been cobbled together from other gospels and oral teachings. It seems like they wanted to tack on something else because you don't want a gospel that ends with fear. So for what we're going to tackle today, we're only going to go to verse 8 of chapter 16. So that's where we're going. So here's our plan of attack for this portion of scripture. We're going to look at the text, make comments as we go, and then after that, I want to linger over what all this means. What does this book mean? What, 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 does it, what does it press upon us? What's the point of the book of Mark? If all of this is true, what does this mean for us today? That's where we're going to go. So firstly, look back at chapter 15. Look at verse 42. It was the day of preparation. It's the day before the, the, the Sabbath. This is a time stamp. This tells us Jesus Christ died on a Friday. Verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, he was a respected member of the council. That same council that in Mark 15, 1 had consulted the chief priests. So he's, he's a member of that council, the, the Sanhedrin. And he took courage and he asked for the body of Christ. Verse 44, Pilate is surprised that Jesus died so fast. That was the, the point of crucifixion was you, you are up on the cross and you die long and it's miserable and it's terrible and the only way that, that you truly die is somebody breaks your, your legs and then you suffocate. Pilate was amazed. How did he die so quickly? Verses 45 through 47 Jesus' body is given to Joseph, and he, he wraps him and lays him in a tomb and rolls a stone in front of it. And then if you look at 
uh, 16.4, Mark calls it very large. It's a very large stone. Uh, Matthew calls it a great stone and adds that the stone was sealed. So this is a very large stone in front of this tomb, uh, hewn into the, to a rock, and then it's, it's, it's sealed. And I just want to pause here. And I want us to put ourselves into the shoes of the two Marys and the disciples. I want you to think about this. The prior Sunday, Jesus enters into the town on a, on a donkey to the praise of the masses. Hallelujah to the son of David. He comes as king. He teaches them throughout the week. He celebrates Passover with them and teaches them in that very, very intimate setting. And then everything falls apart. Everything does. Denials, fear, terror, an arrest, false charges, a court session that should have never happened. Barabbas? What? The murderer? The insurrectionist? He's set free? He's set free? What? Scourging? The long walk down the Via Della Rosa? To the crucifixion site, watching your master on the cross, he's bleeding out, he's crying out, it is finished, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then an earthquake, but he's dead, he's dead. And you're looking upon that, the one whom they had followed, the one whom had, who had given sight to the blind and, and hearing to the deaf and even raised people from the grave, he can't possibly be dead and he is dead. And all of them had fallen away. All of them had. All of them had run from him. And he's dead and he's buried. And they can't go talk to him or seek forgiveness or apologize to him or ever see him again. That's what they were thinking. He's gone. And they're hopeless. And then Saturday comes. And Saturday is the Sabbath day. And the Bible doesn't share their feelings or their thoughts during that day. And I don't want to speculate where the Bible does not speak. But I think it's safe to say that was the hardest Sabbath day they've ever had. They would have been devastated. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what they were thinking? Students, death has a way of waking us up. It makes us, it reminds us that we too will die. And there they were, the one that they had hoped in, the one that they had followed, he was dead. And with that, let's turn to chapter 16. In verse 1, you see this, when the Sabbath was passed, that's a time stamp after the Sabbath. You have in verse 1, women are bringing spices, so that, that's a, that's a henna clause in the Greek, so that, that they want to do something with this, this is the purpose, so that they might go and anoint Christ's body. So what they wanted to do is take all of these spices and anoint him for burial. Remember how fast he died and they have to get him into the grave real quick. So, so all of this was, was quickly done on Friday because we can't possibly do this on, on after, the, after the sundown because then you're in the Sabbath and you'd be breaking Jewish law. So get him in there. Get him in there. And now, today, we're going to anoint him. Very early, verse 2. Look at verse 2. I just love this. And very early, 
Note that. Words matter. Very early on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Words matter, students. Words matter. Every single word matters in your Bible. They rose very early, post-sunrise, but they woke up and they were there very early. At 6 a.m., think about 6 a.m., they're at it. They're moving. They're, They're getting after it. Mark is making an effort here to show that the women are devoted to the Lord. So just a question for you to consider in your groups today. Litmus test test question. What are you willing to sacrifice for? For what reason will you give up sleep? A couple weeks ago, I was driving down to Aurora at 5.45 a.m. on a Monday for physical therapy. And I drive by the Bison Dome, and it is a stinking madhouse, and I had no clue. I had no clue what was going on. Little did I know, people had sacrificed sleep, time, and comfort sleeping outside for a Nebraska volleyball spring match. Doesn't even count. Doesn't even matter. And they are there at 8.15 p.m. the night before to stand in line. What are you willing to sacrifice for? Nebraska volleyball? Are you kidding me? If you were there, how are you doing with your relationship with Christ? You sacrifice sleep for Christ? You'll sacrifice it for volleyball? Are you serious? So students, what are you willing to to wake up early for? Will you you wake up early for the one who took the nails for you, to the one who bled and died for you? Or is it just, oh, ho-hum. I don't need this. I'm smarter than God. What are you willing to get up very early for? That's a true test of what you truly treasure. What are you willing to give up sleep for? Verse 3. The women ask a very innocent question. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Because not only do they want to honor Jesus, they're clueless as to what had happened. That They had no idea. They had no clue. Verse 4. A very large stone is rolled away. Very large. Very early. Do you see some of the repetition here? Very large stone. Very early in the day. Very large. Very, very, very. In the Greek, this word, uh, it's a combination of two words. It is megas sphadra. Here's what the idea is. Large, great, exceedingly. This is a huge stone. This is no small little pebble that just got flicked in front of the door. This is a massive stone. This is a huge stone. And it's rolled away. And it's gone. And it's put to the side. Verses 5 through 8. And an angel speaks to them. Jesus, who was crucified, he has risen. He's not here anymore. He is alive. 
See where he is laid and go tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, just as he said. That's what the angel tells them. And all of this is in fulfillment of what Jesus says at least five times in the Gospel of Mark. And what I want to do is just make sure you get these. So if you have your, uh, you should have your Bibles, flip back uh, Mark 8, 31. Jesus is risen. He is alive. And he said, I will, I will, I will raise again in, five, in three days. Five times he says it. Uh, Mark 8, 31. And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Oh, that's a coincidence. Flip right. Mark chapter 9, verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain of transfiguration, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. I will rise. Two times now. Man, that's a coincidence. Mark 9, 31. He was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered up into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, after three days, he will rise third time. That's a coincidence. Flip right. Mark chapter 10, verse 32 through 34. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, see, and, and we've read this. This is staggering. This is exactly what happened. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. Amen, that happened. And they will condemn him to death. Amen, that happened. And deliver him over to the Gentiles. Amen, that happened. That's Pilate. Pilate's a Gentile. And they will mock him. That happened. Spit on him. That happened. Flog him. That happened. And kill him. That happened. And after three days, he will rise. And that happened. Ah, oh, but that's a coincidence. Uh, keep going. Mark chapter 14. Last one. And here's the Galilee part of this. This is glorious stuff. Talks of his resurrection, talks of Galilee. Here's the Galilee of it all. Mark 14, 26 through 28. Is that the, this is just after the Last Supper. He's talking, uh, foretelling Peter's denial. And he says this. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. That happened. Remember, all of them fell away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Angel, he is risen. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he goes before you to Galilee. In exact Fulfillment of the prophecy of Jesus Christ. This is our Messiah. Five times. I will be raised. 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 And guess what? He was raised. He is alive. Our Savior is alive. We do not worship some dead deity. We worship the living Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord. That's the text. 
Jesus died on a Friday. Jewish calendar systems include any part of the day as a whole day. Jesus, or sorry, Jewish days end at, at, at sundown, so he died before sundown on Friday, day one. Saturday is day two. Sunday then is day three. He rose on the third day. And students, this is fact. This is historical fact. This is truth. This is not some fancy old wives' tale. This is not some fairy tale. This is not some clever myth. This is not some elaborate story concocted in a smoke-filled room. And we have the evidence of the fact that every single one of the apostles suffered greatly. All of them but John died horrific deaths. And, And I just want you to think, all they had to do was say, you know what? Jesus is not God. This was a total joke. We just made this up. That's all they had to do. And yet, they went willingly and singing to a cross, knowing that they were dying for the truth. Would anyone knowingly go and die for a lie? Some people can be deluded into buying a lie. But if you knew the truth, and you understood the truth, and you were eyewitnesses of it, would you concoct some other thing and die for a lie? How foolish. How foolish to think that. And more importantly than even the testimony of the apostles is is the, the testimony of the apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21, he says this. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In fact, these are facts. These are truths. This is true. So Christianity is not based merely upon how it makes you feel. Christianity is not based upon how the music tickles your fancy or doesn't. Christianity is not based upon whether the Bible itself makes you feel good. No. Fie on that. Christianity is about a real Savior who saved us from real sin. It's about real sin. We don't just do oopsies or messes or mistakes or poor choices. We are rebels against God. We have committed cosmic treason against God. And it started with Adam in the garden. He was given one command. Obey and you have life. And disobey and you do not have life. And he ate. And he sinned. And because of Adam, when we are born, we are born sinners. And then we grow up and we do sin. And God is real, and he is holy, and he is just, and he can't just sweep sin underneath the rug. Sin must be judged. It must be, or else God isn't God. And if God gave us justice, we all die. We all die. And so in grace, in mercy, and love, the real God sent his real son, born of a real virgin, at just the right time. Genesis, uh, uh, Galatians 4.4, 4, at the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. And that son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his act of obedience, 
obeyed every single law that God gave us. He obeyed it perfectly. In every part of life where we fail, Christ succeeded. And Jesus Christ in his passive obedience went up on that cross. And there on that cross, Jesus Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, drank the full cup of God's wrath against sin for all who will turn to him and call upon his name. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Christ died, the the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And Christ died. And on the third day, he rose again. As Romans 4 says, for our justification. And dear Christians, you have two great exchanges. Exchange number one, all of your sin has been laid upon him at the cross. And exchange number two is that all of his righteousness has been given to you by faith in him. And so you stand fully righteous in him. And so to the unbeliever, I just plead with you, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. He is mighty to save to the uttermost all who draw near to him in faith. Look away from yourself. Look away from your religion. Look away from your doings. Look away from any sort of church attendance and look only and exclusively upon Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen. Christ loves to save sinners. He is the friend of sinners. All who draw near to him in faith, he will in no way cast out. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. He came not for the righteous, but for the sinners. He came not for those who are well, but for those who are sick and know it. So call upon him today. Confess your sin to him. Repent. Trust in him today. There is no other way. There is no other savior. There is no other hope. Salvation is found in Christ and in Christ alone. Don't trample underfoot the grace of God. Now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of the Lord's favor. Don't wait until tomorrow. Tomorrow never comes. Tomorrow is the pathway of hell. You'll tomorrow yourself all the way to hell. Do not wait. For if you come to Christ, and this is true for us as believers as well, if you come to Christ, you will be washed. Your sins will be forgiven. You will be clean and pure before God. You will be saved from the wrath of God. You will be saved and you will be justified. And not only saved and justified, but now adopted into God's family. And not only adopted into God's family, but then you are sanctified. And how are you sanctified? Because of the same gospel that you believe and the same Christ that saved you. You look to him and you find hope and peace and life in him. And you'll start to resemble the very family name. You'll start to resemble Christ. You'll start to look more and more like him. And then one day, not only will we be saved from the penalty of sin, 
Not only one day will we be saved from the power of sin, but one glorious day we will be saved from the actual presence of sin and we will be glorified and we will stay with him forever. This is the gospel. This is the one gospel upon which the church is found. This is what Christ has done. He is the real Savior. Look to him. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Or last, uh, last Thursday, to this I hold. My sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released. I can sing. I am free. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. So what now? Where do we go from here? What do we do with all of this? Let me close with a question. What does the gospel of Mark call us to? And for that, I have five words. And they all start with the letter S. What does Mark, what does this glorious gospel call us to, young person? Nebraska Christian School student, what does this call us to? S number one, surrender. Surrender. Submit. Same idea. Surrender and submit. Number one S, so you get a double. Unbelievers, repent and trust in Christ. Surrender to him. Find everything you need in him. Find everything. Believers, repent and find rest and trust in Christ. Everything you need is wrapped up in him. And submit to him. He is God. You are not. He calls the shots. You do not. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Well, how do you know what he requires of us? How do you know what it means to submit to him? That leads to the second S. S number two, you must seek him. Seek. Seek him. Diligent commitment to him. The women, remember, they rose early. Not just early, very early. Very early. Seniors, you need to seek him. Got it, seniors? You need to seek him. Students, the rest of you who stay, you need to seek him. Teachers, we need to seek him. And not only do you need to, we get to. This is a joy. He wants you to seek him. He, he, he desires this. This is a joy. This should be a joy to us. This should not be a burden. Seniors, you are wandering out of these halls. Some of you have two full days left. Barely. You are leaving here. And here's what I know. We might not have been the best teachers you have ever had. But I know for each of us, our desire was greatly that you would love Christ. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. 
we desperately want you to love Christ. Because here's, here's the reality, seniors, where you are going, more often than not, you're going to face open hostility to what you believe. You're leaving these halls. And I just plead with you, don't just live your life in the inertia from NC. We have set you on a course. But young man, young woman, it is time for you to run. You need to run on your own. You need to study the Bible for yourself. Psalm 63.1, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Do you thirst for him? Do you hunger for him in that way? Seek him. Seek him. Thirdly, savor him. Savor him. Oh, seniors, oh, students, behold your God. Don't merely seek him. Enjoy him. Savor him. Here's what this looks like. Here's what this sounds like. Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Psalm 56, verses 10 and 11. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God, I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Psalm 73 Verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. John 6, 68 through 69. Peter, after many of the disciples had left, Jesus looks at him and says, will you leave also? Peter cries out, Lord! To whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Paul, Philippians chapter 1. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Or how about Habakkuk? Chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, and this is when everything goes bad. Listen to this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Oh, seniors, live free and savor Christ. Number four, share. Share. Mark's gospel ends abruptly. It ends with women going away in fear. But for my older contingent, Paul Harvey would say, here's the rest of the story. Christ died, Christ rose, he appeared, and the women told the disciples, and the disciples saw him, and they believed, and then they, by and through the power of the Holy Spirit, 
turned the entire world upside down. Jesus gives a command, the, the, the great commission at the end of his life before he ascends to the Father. And he says this, as you go, make disciples, ta ethne, of all peoples. As you go, you make disciples. That's your job. Do the work of evangelism. Now here's the glorious reality. We share what we savor. Why? We want others to share it with us. We want others to enjoy it with us. So if you seek Christ and you savor Christ, you'll want others to savor him too. Anything done on your own is fun, but when you have others who love it too, it's more enjoyable. So you can think of evangelism this way. It's one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. Or sharing with your friends the thing you love the most. And finally, because when you share, you will face opposition. Number five, stand. Stand. Surrender, submit, seek, savor, share, stand. Because here's the reality. You are going to have people from all sides. All sides. Inside the church, outside the church, all asking you to compromise and to conform to the ways of this world. And I just plead with you, stand stand. No, I will not. I will obey God rather than man. You might have to take a stand, sadly, against churches. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. So you might have to stand against anything that adds to Jesus, like the need for penance and other works or against churches that believe that the only way you are saved is if you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or against churches that believe that you are only saved by being baptized. You have to stand against those churches. And sadly, sadly, you might also have to stand against churches that have lost grip with reality. And now they're conforming in godless ways to the spirit of this age. And they now affirm transgenderism, gay mirage, I meant it that way, and countless other sinful garbage. And they just accept it and affirm it. You have to stand against that. And then you might have to stand against this godless world in this godless country. It's from the Wall Street Journal, March 28th, 2023. 25% of people in America say marriage is no longer important. You have to stand on the beauty of marriage, the value of marriage. 33% say it is not important to have children. You will get mocked if you're in a big city and you have a family like the Falks or like mine. You will get mocked. You ever figure out how to stop that? Why? Because in America, we hate children. If we can't abort them, we're going to transgender them. 
That's our country. 33% do, do not think that belief in God is important. This is, this is in our country. 40% do not think that religion is important. And so I just tell you, be ready to stand alone. But. 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 Remember this, oh student. You live in light of the empty tomb. The empty tomb still speaks. And things have been bleak before in this world. And Jesus Christ wins. He always does. He wins. All of his enemies, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, will be a footstool to his feet. The last enemy to be defeated is death itself. And then he will bring the kingdom over to his father. Things have been bleak. I got it. But Christ is enough. Christ is victorious. Christus victor. That's your Jesus. And remember that you stand on the shoulders of giants. And I'm just going to go through a litany of church history names. And you can write them down if you want. You can study these. This is, this is worth your time to see how faithful God has been throughout church history in raising up men who fight for the truth. Athanasius, who stood contra mundum, stood against the entire world. The world, Athanasius, is contra you. Mundum contra Athanasius. Okay. If the world will be against me, then Athanasius contra mundum. I will stand against the whole world if I have to. Man named Telemachus going into the into the uh, oh goodness uh, the Colosseum in Rome during the gladiatorial games and just standing there in the middle in the name of Christ. Stop! And he died. And they killed him. And the game stopped. Polycarp. 86 years I have been Christ's servant and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And so he was brought before all of these Romans. And the Christians were considered the atheists. And, and what the Romans wanted him to do was point to the Christians and say, away with the atheists. And he takes out his bony 86-year-old finger. And he points out at the Romans. And he points out at the emperor. Away with the atheists. Or Luther. Or Calvin. Or Spurgeon. Or J. Gresham Machen. Or B.B. Warfield. Or Jonathan Edwards. Or R.C. Sproul. Or John MacArthur. Or James Coates. And a host of people up in Canada standing for religious freedom up there and putting, being put in jail up there. Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. How about Eric Little, who goes to the Olympic Games, finds out that his meet, his event is being run on a Sunday, and he cannot run, so he does not run, and he runs in a different event instead. And then goes off to China, lays it all down for the cause of the gospel. Or how about William Wilberforce? He fought parliament and he ended the entire British slave trade. 
And he didn't just stand there once. He was there for a long time fighting and standing for the gospel. James Montgomery Boyce says, the Bible says in many different passages that true disciples of Jesus Christ will be persecuted. It is inevitable. It is a natural consequence of exhibiting true Christian character. And yet any honest assessment of the Christian church in America must point out that although this country is far from being Christian and is ungodly, he wrote this in the 1970s, and is ungodly, nevertheless, there is very little persecution of Christians today. What is wrong with this scenario? Is it possible that the Bible is wrong? Or are we Christians today simply not showing the type of righteous character that Jesus said results in persecution? And remember, oh, students, you stand with Christ. John Knox loved this quote. God plus one is a majority. You stand with Christ. You stand with the undefeated ruler of the world. Death couldn't hold him down. So from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. This is my charge to you. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Final two questions for you. What are you willing to take a stand for? And secondly, more importantly, what are you willing to die for? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, I pray. Pray for these seniors. I pray for juniors, the sophomores, the freshmen in absentia, eighth grade, seventh, us as teachers, administration. Father, I pray that we wouldn't have to die for this. And yet, Father, I pray that you would give us such boldness and such courage in you that we would be willing to. Not only to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, but to die for it, to lay down our lives for the cause of the gospel, to lay down our lives for the cause of Christ in this world. Father, I pray for such boldness, such courage, such steely spines in our seniors that they would savor Christ above all, trust in him above all, share Christ wherever they go, and then stand for him in a lost and dying world that desperately needs to hear the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for the book of Mark. Thank you for what it calls us to, and thank you that we do not run alone. We run with Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.